Welcome to Pull Up A Chair. I'm Bina Mehta, the chair of KPMG in the UK. And in each episode, I'm talking to some of the world's most influential leaders and thinkers about sustainable growth, what it means to them, and why it matters. We also explore the challenges and opportunities of delivering growth responsibly and ethically in a way that meets the needs of people, planet, and profit. For today's episode, I'm excited to be joined by Baroness Eliza Manningham-Buller, former Director General of MI5 and Chair of the Wellcome Trust. We'll be discussing Eliza's time at MI5 and how the world changed during her time there, her experiences as a celebrated female leader, and how she has helped to create more diverse organisations and institutions. When we had this conversation, colleagues from KPMG were abseiling down the building to raise money for our national charity partner, Marie Curie. So if you hear cheering in the background at some parts, it's not me or Eliza, that's why. So Eliza, thank you very much for joining me today. I am really excited to be exploring the changing nature of leadership with you. You've got an incredible lens across national security, global health, the corporate world, in your role in the House of Lords. Um, So there are so many perspectives that I know we're going to be digging into through this conversation. And most importantly, it's about in this current environment, how do you meet the needs of people, planet, and profit? So I'd just like to start, if it's okay with you, to by asking you, what does sustainability mean to you? Uh, well, first of all, Ben, thank you very much for having me. And all we can do to prevent our grandchildren living on a planet that's unlivable in is critically important. And I, I find it hard to be optimistic because we seem regularly to duck doing the things we need to do inescapably to make this planet sustainable. And I've got lots of grandchildren, they're my step-grandchildren, I've got 16. And they, the future of the planet is the single thing that worries them. Okay, they have, you know, bad relationships, failed exams, whatever, uh, too much rent to pay, but it's, it's the planet that alarms them most. And it's interesting you raise that because in the context of sort of the new generation coming through, I I agree with you. So we sort of hear that through our colleagues because our median age is 27. So most of our colleagues are now Gen Z and those are the things that they worry about. Um, Whereas when I started my career, it might have been a slightly different challenge, to be fair. But you talk about climate being the, do you think that is the single biggest challenge for us? Or are there other sort of opportunities for us to do something well, I, I, I think that there's, there is the opportunity of the green growth agenda, which I read about. I can't tell you that I've got an insight into it, but it seems to make real sense that there's great possibilities for hitting both commercial advantage and the planet. And um, I'm also very struck by the degree to which science is capable of bringing us some of the solutions if we grasp them. But of course, the reluctance um, of many leaders to do so, um, I think is out of sync with their populations in many cases, actually. Do you think it's reluctance of leaders or do you think it's the sort of leadership, because you know you you were responsible for the national security of our country, so you with others, fa- with <laughs> others absolutely. But you were very very clearly focused on 
delivering outcomes for everybody. And therefore, you were used to dealing with risks, evolving risks all the time. Do you think the leadership's qualities, when you're facing into resolving resolution of risks or these big threats, is slightly different to maybe some, some organisations may necessarily expect? Well, I'd, I'd like to answer that question in two parts. Um, when you're thinking about risks, I think it's preferable to start thinking, start with threats. What is the threat? Um, and it's pretty clear on climate, but of course there's a range of other threats. And then you think about um, what you can do to mitigate, what your vulnerabilities are, and then you end up with the risk. So, for example, you could have a very high threat problem, um, but the mitigation is so good that it's actually a low risk. It can happen the other way around. A very low risk, which you can't mitigate, is a, a very low threat, which you can't mitigate, is a high risk. So... I prefer to think like in those components before rushing to risk, because risk is the sum of the two earlier formula. Um, the other part of your question where you started was, was, was about the leadership qualities needed today. Well, you need all the conventional ones, and I, I almost have by heart the um, Lord Nolan principles of conduct in public life, which I... Uh, very much were something in the public service that you try to s subscribe to. The Nolan principles, um, selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty and leadership are all still really important. They're just they're no longer quite sufficient. There's two that are not there. Anything about sustainability or anything about diversity or inclusion. And that dates them a bit. But as a, as a foundation document, they're really important. Thank you for that. I think that's really interesting that you highlight how those principles evolve due to societal changes, as well as the environment that we're currently living in. Um, I would just like to go back to your, uh, your time as Director General of MI5. You took that role in 2002, um, when the world was still reeling from 9-11, and you had a very integral role during that point, um, which you shared in your wreath lectures. But what really struck me in your wreath lectures was you talked about um, the importance of politics and economics in dealing and facing into threats and issues and risks. Yeah. Would you be happy to elaborate a little bit more for our audience what, that, what well, you mean? Well, I think uh, I was very much thinking at that stage when I was drafting the lectures of Northern Ireland, which, insofar as it's solved, which of course it isn't, there's, there's a long, long history. So I think what I was trying to address was that the threat of terrorism is very rarely sufficiently addressed by either military or intelligence means. It needs other reasons to remove the causes, to remove the, and the politics and economics come into it. And of course, many terrorist groups have absolutely understood the importance of trying to damage a nation economically. And it's interesting we talk about the economy of nations um, because the prosperity of individuals and nations and the world does rely on working together, collectively. So just drawing on some of your experiences, and you talked about sustainability, and you know, in the, my conversations with my peers, the, 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 the challenge is no one organization, no one country can solve this really existential issue. And that requires working together collaboratively. So I'd just like to get your thoughts, and you would have had this in your you know, time at Welcome too. How do you think leaders can work best 
across borders. When you have, you don't necessarily come from the same um, drivers necessarily or the same motivations. No, or the same culture or the same standards or the same anything. Um, but if you just only talk to people to, with whom you feel comfortable and close, in other words, your allies, you have a very limited perspective. And, you know, I've talked to some quite unpleasant people, um, but Churchill, as I said in the recent lectures, said George Orwell's better than World War. We live in a world where there are plenty of people who we might rather not engage with, but unless we do engage with them, we won't solve some of the big problems. So you have to find areas where you can work closely together. Um, and you know, very few problems are entirely local. And that plays to your point around inclusivity, where you talked about sustainability and inclusivity, or um, it is about how do you embrace difference to come to the right outcome. So you are you strike me as somebody that's always been ahead of your times. And in my in my so. no, no, you have. And as chair of the Wellcome Trust, you created a very diverse board. And that was back in 2015. And we are talking about diversity, diversity of boards. Um, and one thing that really struck me is we're still talking about it, but what where the way you looked at it, we look at it in terms of lenses, you know, we've got the right gender balance have we got the right ethnicity balance but what you said there is no single solution but the most important thing is to offer flexibility to all employees not just women I'd like to just get your your thoughts on how important it is for leaders to listen to the changing voice of society I think it's incredibly important um and, and also just before we leave your earlier point on on diversity I mean you you if you, if you deny yourself talent, whether from whichever bit of society we're talking about, by saying, well, I'm going to exclude that section, you're doing, you, you don't deserve to do well in your, what you're trying to achieve. Because certainly in intelligence, a range of different views in interpreting what is very rarely clear is extremely important. I think it's extremely important to leaders to try and tune in both to societal changes insofar as you can, and one of the ways I do that is, is through grandchildren, but also to listen to the young in your organisation, the new arrivals, before they've become institutionalised. And I always used to encourage arrivals to challenge, to say, why are we doing this? Why are we doing it this way? Have we thought about it? What if? And in... Um, 2003 we got a very substantial increase in our budget but we only got that having done a whole lot of work on how we could get better what we did and I learned at that time that some of the best ideas were from some of the most junior staff it wasn't the old lags who said were inclined to say things well we always done it like this um well some of them did but it was making sure that you got fresh ideas from other people with a different perspective on things. And I think there's something to learn from that, isn't yes. there, for all of us, because every single organisation is facing into this new, well, post-COVID, 
you know, people coming back into work with different expectations of the work environment. You've got a new generation coming through whose own expectations are different. And as you, as you say, you know, I'm very mindful in our boardroom that we're a whole generation away from the people we're making decisions for. And so we do need to listen to the voice. Um, I just wanted to move on the conversation a little bit because you were in role um, at the MI5 until 2007. So it's five years is a long time to be leading the organization. Do you feel that, well, what was your biggest learning from a leadership perspective through that time? And do you think it changed a lot over that period? Well, I'd previously been dep single deputy for five years. So in effect, I'd, I'd been near the top for 10. I think, I think it, you learn, you should learn things the whole time. Mm. And once you stop learning, then you should go and do your knitting in the country. I don't think, Bina, that I can pick out one particular thing I learnt, but just a random selection, um, the importance of being accessible to your staff and hearing them and listening to them, um, the importance of, of ambition, um, and the fact that I, one of the things I learned, which is, I think, really valuable, it's easier to do major change on the back of a crisis. It was easier to do major change on the back of 9-11 than perhaps when you get to a steady state because everybody got it. Um, so those, a bad bit of advice I got at that stage, which was from somebody who was a senior businessman because I sought the help of business in this massive expansion we were going to do um, and he said don't try and change everything at once because you'll drop the ball and actually that was completely wrong it was exactly the moment to try and change everything we didn't change everything but you know looked at every single thing we did how we did it how we recruited how we trained and against the background that the, the urgency of doing that was self-apparent to everybody it's interesting you say that we are best at transformation coming through a crisis, coming from a restructuring background. That's the best point at to which affect change. But the reality is the world is changing so fast, whether it's geopolitics, economic environment, technology. The accelerated pace of change, I think, requires leaders to think slightly different, a bit more agile. And you've, talk, you've talked a lot about the sort of core principles of leadership, but one of the things I'd like to get your perspective on is sort of the agility um, and the pace of change going forward over the next 10 years. What are the two, one or two things that you think you'd expect leaders to start to sort of really focus on? I'm always a bit nervous about future predictions because so often they're wrong and we can't actually see in the future, but precisely because we can't, anticipate all of the things that are going to happen. Um, I think it's really important that your staff are trained for and rewarded for f agility and flexibility. I mean, there's other things you would require yeah, yeah. as well, but um, certainly in my career in intelligence, you never knew, as it were, what the opposition was going to throw at you. So you, it was hard to plan because you didn't know what plot was going to arise or what it was going to be like or where the next threat was coming from. So you trained and exercised for various scenarios, which were never the one that happened. And therefore, putting a big premium on agility, anticipation, and the ability to move from A to B quickly, and to bin A and move on to C and reprioritize has, has a great importance. And I think this is exactly what business leaders are dealing with. This would have been your day, day to day. This would have been BAU for you. 
But it is the reality now of a yes. lot of businesses um, that, you know, you're planning for a crisis. It, it's not a crisis in the sort of the, the sort of the threats that you're talking about, but whatever it is that disrupts business, that disrupts services, that impacts reputation. So this agility and flexibility is something that I hear a lot of businesses or leaders really trying to instill. When you've got large workforces, it's hard as well because it has to come through the organisation. Yes. Given the nature of the challenges that businesses are facing into and some of the existential things we've talked about, how do you think government and business could work better together? That's a very difficult question um, because... Um, Within politics, there's still quite a lot of residual failure to understand the importance of business to the economy. And um, I mean, I, I worked with business in, in various ways. One in, for example, um, the national critical infrastructure, you know, the utilities yeah. and so on, um, making sure they got a distilled version of intelligence in order to protect themselves. The days when MI5 just sat in a sort of... Um, um, huddled and didn't tell anybody anything over. And now, you know, recently there was, there was something called the National Protective Security Centre or something where you can go and seek advice if you're business. Um, it's all intertwined. And I, I know that an opposition is talking to business quite substantially. Um, but I think the main point for business to understand is that politics is is quite short term and it's quite concerned with winning the next election so the difference between the long term aspirations of a business to go on being relevant and productive and profitable on into the you know middle of the century is out of sync with any sort of political agenda and therefore you have to sort of build bridges where you can and but like dealing with anybody, like dealing with other organisations, like dealing with other partners, it only works if you understand their position, you understand what their priorities and you recognise that their priorities may be different to yours and then there's a chance of interlocking where they overlap. But they're never going to be the same. And that's really interesting because that plays to the point you talk about, about inclusivity, understanding and taking differences and coming to a common understanding or alignment you've had to deal with some very complex challenges multiple stakeholders um, long-term short-term the urgency can you share any advice as to how you stayed calm and navigated through well I think I'm a fortunate person because I'm broadly speaking calm um, the thing that stresses me is if the washing machine breaks down or something like that. I'm really bad at that sort of thing. I was funny enough talking to a friend who's a senior banker who had a problem with his electricity supply the other day and he said, um, you know, give me the financial crisis any time <laughs> to deal with this. So calm. I think, I think one of the things that is, is, is matters is, is not being too unkind on yourself. All you can do is your best, and you hope your best is enough. But it may not be. But if, you're, if you constantly beat yourself up for failure, 
uh, you never achieve anything. That's not to say you just shouldn't do self-reflection and you shouldn't ensure that people give you feedback because you will get things wrong. You will mess up. You will make the wrong decisions. You will misjudge things. You will handle things badly, however much you intend not to. And when those things happen, you need to reflect. You need to try and learn. You treat, need to try not to repeat. But unless you get feedback from trusted colleagues, you'll make the same mistake. So calm and focus depends on a degree of humility, knowing that you won't get everything right. Therefore, you need the help from your colleagues so you're not alone. Um, but equally, it means accepting that all you can do is your best. You're not superhuman. And you hope your best will be good enough. And if you work within government, if it's not, you get sacked. Yes, there's always a hard edge at the end, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> the ultimate. But there's an even harder yeah. edge for politicians. Yeah. You know, there as uh, I can't remember who it was said. All all political careers end in failure, which is you know kind of true <laughs> to a degree. When you became the head of British Security Service, you were at the um, you were only the second female to hold that position. Yes. And an inspiration to many females, I am absolutely convinced, in the service and outside of business. Um, I know you don't really feel comfortable talking about this, Eliza, but you are an inspiring role model. And you are a role model that's inspired a whole future group of female leaders. How do you, how important is that to you? And you, I know inclusion is really important to you, but being a role model, how important is it for you? It's not, actually. And, and I'm actually suspicious of role models because it tends to be our gender who's told they need them. And I don't think you should model yourself on anybody. I think you should play to your strengths, think about what sort of leader you want to be, try and address your weaknesses. I mean, I, I, when I think of that, I don't know that I had many role models. I, I certainly was influenced by my parents. But during my career, I looked at people and thought of a leader that was clever that was subtle that was worth imitating but I equally looked at plenty of people and thought well if I'm ever in a position of leadership <laughs> I'm not going to behave like that yeah so I would argue against anybody modeling themselves on somebody else but you can learn from observing other people both good and bad and then try and take it into your own um, style of leadership. Um, I, and I think going on learning, you know, you, you, you can, if you think, oh, I'm doing this fine, you're probably not. And I'm also suspicious of those who say leadership's lonely. It's only lonely if you think you're the person who knows all the answers and you're on a pedestal and the, the, the serfs come and ask you questions and you tell them what to do. If you if that's your style of leadership, it's fatal and arrogant and lonely. But if you see yourself as privileged to be part of a wider team, um, many of whom may be cleverer and better than you, in fact, most of them probably are, it's a whole different take on leadership and you don't feel lonely. Thank you for that. Thank you for your honesty. Because when we first met, that's exactly what you told me. I know, I'm I'm I loved it. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, you have to be your version of your best self, but you should be learning. You talked about lifelong learning. And lifelong learning is about learning about yourself and 
learning the qualities that you want to emulate from others. And I do. I love the way you articulate that. I think you're absolutely right. So thank you for your honesty there. Um, you have said in the past that it's been a privilege to work with highly motivated colleagues um, who have got a common purpose. And I know purpose is important to you, but I'd just like you to elaborate on that. But more importantly, to have motivate, highly motivated colleagues means that you as a leader did something to help instill that and bring that to life. So I'd love to just get your thoughts on I'm that. I'm not sure how much the leader... I mean, the leader can destroy morale. Yeah. But if you're motive, if, if say, an MI5 or in Welcome, one of the things you're trying to do is save life. Um, and at Welcome, you're trying to help develop medical research, which will save millions of lives, was... MI5's trying to save thousands and also protect the UK from other threats. Um, if, you, if you have that role and that purpose, that unites everybody in a single purpose. And, and there isn't the need for the, for the leader to, to sort of instill that. The leader can destroy the morale, clearly, but actually the reward of being part of an operation that saves thousands of lives or at Welcome funding a piece of research that leads to something that's going to save millions of lives, which was plenty of examples of our doing, that's a reward in itself. That is the best. Equally, of course, um, when something awful happens and you wonder if you could have prevented it, or you invest long term in a in a piece of research that actually turns out to be totally non-productive, you have setbacks and disappointments. But then we do in every job and every way of life. So you have to sort of just keep going. But it's interesting because the way you talk about the work you did through the Wellcome Trust, as well as what you've done in your previous roles in the service. If you look back to younger self, Eliza, would you have ever imagined that you would have had a hand in having such a positive impact, whether it's hundreds of lives, thousands of lives, or millions of lives? No, I wouldn't. And I, I, I wasn't ever one of those people who ambition to run anything. I just wanted the next job to be interesting. Um, and I wanted to, to have, um, like, doing what I did. And, and most important of all, in some ways, I wanted to have compatible colleagues who I liked and respected and had fun with. And I did that in, in both in the intelligence world, but also among scientists who I met some absolutely remarkable people and um, loved doing so. I remember actually in the wreath lectures, I think you were asked the question, weren't you? Um, what, how, did you how did you choose this profession or how did you get into this job? And you, I think your answer was, I'm going to paraphrase it here, I just needed a job. <laughs> well... <coughs> One, that, but also I, I, I didn't know what I was applying for. That's right, that's, it, right. that's if, what you said. If, if, if um, you I decided on a career change, Bina, you could apply online, mi5.gov.uk, um, whereas I wandered along to somewhere called Room 055 in the old war office building, and I could write my name. And before I knew it, I'd joined this strange organisation. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, I think I was very naive. I didn't really know what I was doing. Well, it was for the benefit of all of us, so thank you for doing it. So, Eliza, there's a lot of focus um, today on behaviours and conduct, and I know you lead the conduct committee at the Council of Lords. I'd love to get your thoughts and insight into that in the context of leadership. I think that in the past, possibly 
our special emphasis was placed on how you behave. And clearly leaders need to think about strategy, direction, uh, what you're trying to achieve, what your aims are, and all of that matters. And, and steering an organisation with your colleagues is all important. But none of it has so much merit if you behave bad. And I'm afraid I've seen um, leaders in all sorts of areas who behave badly. And I think that a degree of the emphasis on behaviour today is healthy, because if you don't behave well, you'll be imitated, and that is corrosive through an organisation. And I, I really would want to suggest that my standards of behaviour are always ones I'm, I was proud of, but at least I hope I aspired to being comfortable in my behaviour and tried to apologise if it fell short of what happened to you. I was going to talk to you a little bit about you. So you, a lot of people turn to you for counsel. You have a very responsible role in the House of Lords too, around conduct. I've benefited from your thoughts and counsel too. I'd just like to know where you go to, for grounded counsel advice. Who do you turn to? Friends, really, and colleagues. Um, and without naming them, I was on a course 30 plus years ago with, it was called the Top Management Programme, and it was for the public sector and the private sector. And I made friends with two people, two men, and both ended up at the absolute top of their professions. And if I named them, you'd know them. But for the following 30 plus years, we met every two months and we talked about the difficulties that we were facing in our careers with complete confidence. And that's been the most invaluable um, relationship and still continues. Uh, two of us are no longer full-time. The third person has a very heavy job. And so it's normally us telling him what to do rather than the other way around. <laughs> no, I don't, of course we don't tell him what to do. But um, you, you, you need to turn... To, to switch off. You need not to take work home the whole time, although perhaps you do now you work from home. I never experienced that. But you need downtime, you need relaxation, you need another life from whatever you do, otherwise you lose perspective. And in that other life, you find love and support from lots of people. I think you've just answered my next question, but I do have to ask it. What piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Um, stop being so impatient. I was I was um, constantly impatient with <laughs> everything, and um, I learnt to be better. Um, I'm still a bit short on the patient spectrum, um, but I always was sort of wanted to get on and get it done and so on, which sometimes meant I made decisions too quickly. Um, with inadequate reflection. Those would probably be something in that area. I don't recognise any of those. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eliza, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Um, there are so many nuggets around leadership. So the Nolan principles, that's the one thing I'm definitely taking away, the list. And it's actually very interesting because the things that you talked about, honesty, integrity, accountability, objectivity, transparency. And selflessness. And selflessness. Which is a key one. If, if this is all about you... 
that's, that's fatal. Can't, yeah. And that comes through in a number of ways. So selflessness as a leader, you talked about not holding yourself on a pedestal. So leadership shouldn't be lonely. And it's really interesting. You were the first, and I think I told you when we spoke, you were the first person that ever said to me, leadership shouldn't be lonely. Because a lot of people do feel it. And I'm not suggesting that that's because, but I think there is an, you know, if you have people you trust and you welcome input from. You um, talked about the lifelong learning, which I think is something that we're trying to encourage our younger colleagues to make sure that they come with that mindset because the world is changing so fast. And also it's fun. It is fun. Yeah, it is fun. I'm learning all the time. I'm loving it. Um, But you talked about, one thing that you do talk about about leadership, and I think it's something that sometimes we forget because we're so in the grit of the dealing of the issues and the transactional nature of what we've got to face into. But let's not forget that we need to be accessible, we need to be listening, and we need to be ambitious for our colleagues. And that's what people look to. So whilst we're not role models, you do provide inspiration. And it comes from what you just then said, which was about the qualities that people value and want to aspire to have as you well. You need which to is, be kind. You need to be kind. And I think that is that is the essence of it. And it comes through in everything I've read about you. I've met you many times. I just think it comes through loud and clear. Despite what's been going on around you, you've led with care. I'd just add one thing. I think don't take yourself too seriously. Because if you do your staff won't take you seriously at all. That is a lovely bit of advice to finish with. Thank you so much. You've got to laugh at yourself. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today on Pull Up A Chair, whether you're at home, at work, or somewhere in between. I do hope you'll join me next time for more insights from business leaders and thinkers on how to unlock sustainable growth that delivers to the needs of people, planet and profit. Goodbye.